The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Luke 17, 11-19. Now on His way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And he was going into a village. Ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show them yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Praise and go, your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Ruthie, that's great. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's a great delight to be back here. Um, you know, I, I would really appreciate your prayers. Uh, I, I, I speak in different places, uh, you know, here and, and in different parts of the world. This is not an easy place for me to speak. I want to just out name the, the, the elephant in the room, and, and, and I don't know what it is. I think it may be the architecture. It may, I, I think the other big thing for me is I come in here, speak, and then I just leave without saying hi to you. So I feel like I'm just dropping some kind of homiletical bomb and then getting out of here. <laughs> Letting, you know, Stacy do the cleanup, mop-up operation afterwards. So, um, so I want to just acknowledge the fact that it's not easy for me to preach, and I would really cover your prayers. And also, um, I don't know. So, because um, I, you know, when I come here, it often means I'm speaking three times. And then, so, the first sermon I give at 8.30 is the worst. This one is the second worst, and the 11 o'clock, because you failed twice, you're batting one for three, so it's not that bad. But, um, well, thank you, Ruthie, for uh, reading that scripture, and let's uh, look to the Lord for a word of prayer as we begin this time to think about this story of lepers and healing and Jesus. Gracious God, help us to dwell on these words, gracious God that you do not treat us according to our deservings, that you do not abandon us to our own devices, that you do not leave us alone when we say, just leave me alone, that you come to us, you come after us in your wonderful mercy and plan. Gracious Lord, I pray for my sisters and brothers seated here in this sanctuary that you will do your appointed work of opening their hearts. And, O Lord, please forgive me of my different thoughts. And as I open your words, may you do the work. May you accomplish your purposes so that through this time we can say we have encountered the risen Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today's title is The Lepers Who Didn't Say Thanks. 
Well, there are nine who didn't say thanks, and we kind of know the story, so we should just go home, so we think. Um, And I think that is the danger of these gospel stories. We think we know what they're saying, and upon closer inspection, we come to realize, ah, maybe I missed a boat. I'm not here to try to make you feel guilty that you and I are, in fact, like the nine lepers that didn't come back to say thanks. It is not designed to be a moralistic sermon. Try harder and you'll get it right with God. It is not any of those things. The text was given to me. So just think about when I preach, they usually give me the text, give me the title, and you have to go come up with whatever. It's just, I, I think for a speaker, it's a great exercise. You don't know what you're going to preach on, and they give you the title, and you have to come up with the story that will fit the title and the text. So the lepers who didn't say thanks was not my title, but I find a lot of really interesting uh, stuff in there for us to think about, especially in this season of Thanksgiving. I'm also aware of the fact that there are non-Christians here and Christians here, and we come from different backgrounds, uh, be it maybe from the South and West Coast, East Coast, and different countries and different cultural and socioeconomic backgrounds. And all of those things bring us to this place of worship as we have opened the scriptures, as we are now ready to listen to it. As it has been just read for us, today's text presents to us a very intriguing conundrum. As we said, 10 lepers are healed in the spectacular display of their faith, actually. They, as we will see soon, they exercise a little modicum of faith that really um, led to their healing. And also, Jesus is omniscience, or at least the sort of prescient power to direct future contingencies to come together in this great healing of all these 10 individuals who had been basically rejected by their community previously. So here is the conundrum. Of the 10 lepers healed, only one came back to give thanks to Jesus. So the inevitable question raised for the nine would be, why weren't they thankful? Or at least to put it differently, How come they didn't express their gratitude to Jesus in that concrete action of returning to him and saying thanks? There are several elements of surprise as well as sort of an ironic juxtaposition of putting side by side of the things that might escape the readers or the viewer, the crowd's view, unless they are noticed by Jesus or the writer himself, Luke the Evangelist. What I'm saying is this. Imagine ourselves back in the first century. Imagine ourselves in this context, uh, and we are noticing there are 10 lepers, and they couldn't come near us. It'll be about 50, uh, 42 yards, to be exact, uh, of difference, uh, distance that you have to maintain. If I'm a leper, you couldn't be in the front row. You'll be at least about 10th row, 10th pew. And then we have to keep that distance at all times. I have to let you know that I'm leprous, and I have to cry out by saying, unclean, unclean. So there are 10 lepers, first of all. Second of all, they were standing at a distance, and the story that is actually part of ancient Judaism is that leprosy was a communal problem. It's actually talked about somewhat extensively in Leviticus chapter 13. Yeah, I know, it's probably your favorite book in the Bible, right? Leviticus chapter 13, when you have time to read these two verses that says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. 
His dwelling shall be outside the camp. We'll come back to this expression outside the camp toward the end of our sermon. Another point to notice from this story is that they initiated contact with Jesus. As Jesus was walking along, they cried out, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Nothing of their own deserve. Only this keen recognition or feeling of their absolute dependence on this Jesus about whom they had heard and whose miracles could also perhaps trickle down on them. So they reasoned, although they were undeserving of God's mercies, and they were acutely aware of it by the distance that they had to keep from their former friends and their estranged family members. What Jesus says in response to your request, at least to me, is the first element of surprise. What does he say? He says, go, show yourselves to the priests. Notice this in response to them saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And what he says is, go show yourselves to the priest. That to me seems like a, uh, I don't know, what, what do you call it? Something that don't follow, right? Seems kind of nonsense. It seems like a non sequitur. Like what? You know, I said, have mercy on us. And you're telling me, go show yourself to the priest. Why? Because the only time these quarantined and marginalized and nearly forgotten lepers could come near to the priest was when they were ready to demonstrate their wholeness and healing. So Jesus is saying, look, when they said, have mercy on us, Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. So they could either say, are you insulting our intelligence here? We may be lepers, but we're not idiots. Rather than healing us, you're telling us to go show ourselves to the priest. But notice also, almost in an eerie silence and terseness, we read that they did not vacillate or question the possibility of Jesus' strange statement. It says, they went. Isn't that interesting? How would we have responded? They, you know, just really crazy to me that Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priest. And they, without asking him, well, what did you say? Have we heard you right? They just went. And that leads me to the second element of surprise. And as they went, they were cleansed. No way. I mean, did you hear what I've just read? As they went, they were healed. I don't know about you. Let me be honest with you. I have a real hard time believing it. I believe it because I have this sort of a Christian confirmation bias. What the gospel says must be true, must have happened. But I cannot deny the fact that could it really, okay, I believe it. But there's a sort of a residual element of like, wow, one, I wish I were there. I wish I were walking along 50 yards away from these lepers and seeing them as you're walking and walking and walking. There's a moment, there is a period of transformation. Let's say my hands are all kind of mangled up. My skin is all wrinkled and my hair is, I mean, whatever, like all of these things, my bodily kind of presence demonstrates the curse of God. And as I'm walking to the priest, I am being transformed. And remember, I mean, notice, I mean, put yourselves in that situation. Put yourselves in that situation, put ourselves in a situation of being estranged from our community. My friends and my family members could not be near me for six years. I've been a leper for six years. My family could not really hang out with me. My son could not come near me. My daughter, who just got baptized, but I contracted leprosy, and then I could not see her for six. I mean, that would be disaster. And Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priest. And I'm, as I'm walking along, I'm, I'm experiencing a miracle. Could this be it? This is craziness. And you're healed. 
unbelievable, unprecedented. Now the question for all of us is, what would you do? What would you do? See, we have two diametrically opposite courses of action, the nine and the one. And I'm not saying we should be like the one, nor am I saying, why are you like the nine? Because I think we missed the fo- focus of the story, actually. If we focus on the nine who didn't come back, or if we focus on the one who came back, we end up kind of moralizing the story here. Because it then becomes a sort of a reductionistic moralism of try harder and you'll get it right with God. And I don't think that is the gospel story. If this is a surprise, what, what, what I've just said, then I think you need to listen again. Christianity is not try harder and you'll somehow get it right with God. I don't think so. And we'll see what that is here. All right. So then let's look at another element of surprise. Only one out of ten came back to say thank you to Jesus. Okay. I get that I would have maybe one out of ten students express gratitude at Vanderbilt at the end of the semester. I get that. But Jesus, come on. Jesus is the Lord of all, creator of all universe and cosmos. He's the son of God. If he you know, did something miraculous like this to ten people, I would have thought at least five of them came back and said thank you. Maybe six, maybe seven. Why just one? I don't get it. I'm registering not disbelief, but really an element of connection. It's like, oh, okay, if Jesus only got one 10% yield on, you know, having people say thank you, maybe I shouldn't feel so bad if I teach a class of 70 people and nobody says thank you. Like, all right, that's okay. So good, I move on. And so one out of 10. I feel much better as a teacher, but still... And another element of surprise, you ready for this? This healed former leper was a Samaritan. What do you make of that? And we'll develop this in just a little bit. Fifth element of surprise that Jesus seems a bit surprised, if not slightly disappointed. He asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Jesus noticed, and had he not mentioned it, we would not actually know that there were, this person who came back was a Samaritan. And another thing to notice here from this story is that Jesus says, your faith has made you well. I often wondered about that. I often wondered about the other nine. Wait, whoa, whoa, what? What What happened to the other nine? Did leprosy come back to them because they didn't come back to Jesus and say thank you? No, we're trivializing, we're trivializing the work of God. God is not a stingy or parsimonious God. They got healed and they went back to their families and led their life. But there's something that happens to this Samaritan, both internally and externally, that really kind of causes us to think about our relationship with God in some ways as well. So for the rest of our time here, I would like to share three points regarding the lepers who didn't say thanks, or just from this story, three things. We actually noticed three ironies in this story. The first irony is the irony of entitlement. The irony of entitlement. Second irony is the irony of estrangement. Third irony is the irony of the gospel. Entitlement, estrangement, and if you knew Greek, it'll actually rhyme well, evangelion, but the gospel. All right, so entitlement, estrangement, and the evangelion or the gospel. So let's look at the first irony, the irony of entitlement. 
If you're like me, you probably wondered a good deal about who these nine lepers might have been, no? I mean, because the title says, the lepers who didn't come say thank you, and you are like every right to say, who are these people? And before we take the next step, you know, the sort of application step of, well, the the 10 lepers are me, or the nine are me. Let's not do that yet. Let's not maybe even not do it at all. Let's actually look at this story here again. And I was, as I was preparing this message, I was looking at the uh, Jewish annotated New Testament's comment on this issue. So this Jewish uh, annotated New Testament, so written by Jewish scholars and their New Testament scholars and talking about this. And they said, okay, these nine who didn't, whose identities we don't really know from the story were presumably Jews because the contrast is very clear. So Jesus is going between Galilee and Samaria, right? And so there's a Samaritan. And then these nine others who are unnamed in terms of their, unidentified in terms of their ethnic makeup is likely, quite likely to have been Jew because the whole story of early Christianity was the issues between Jews and Gentiles. How they were coming together by the power of the gospel and they were experiencing the work of reconciliation that God was doing. So the Jewish lepers are supposed to have shown themselves to the priests in Jerusalem, whereas the Samaritans were to show themselves uh, to the priests in Mount Gerizim. Did you know that there is a a little bit, well, to say a little bit of tension would be an understatement. There's quite a bit of tension between Jews and Gentiles, and also Jews and Samaritans especially. Because on the one hand, the Gentiles are not Jews at all, but then the Samaritans are a little bit of a mixed race. And that became a problem for some of the Jews. Many of the Jews, they, be, they were like, You're, you don't even have our own Bible. You create your own cult, a strange religion, ethnically, religiously, culturally, you're weird people. So there was a clear line of demarcation and discrimination between Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Samaritans. And this is that particular tension here. Since these ten were together calling out for Jesus' attention, one could assume that they might have been together, together living, perhaps. Although we can't be conclusive here, when they were in their state of being leprous and marginalized and rejected by majority community, they found themselves huddled up together in one purpose, because misery does love company. They knew that as lepers... They were cursed by God. They knew that as lepers, they could not be part of the worshiping community. They knew that as lepers, they had to keep that safe distance. In order to create safe space for them, they had to live outside a city camp. Imagine that sense of alienation. Sense of alienation created by the worshiping community. Then why, oh why did you not return and say thanks? Irony of entitlement is the first point as well as my burden of proof during this message. So think with me. Luke was a medical doctor and likely a Gentile convert to Christianity. So when he wrote his gospel as well as the book of Acts, he did so to show that Jesus came for the underdogs, culturally, religiously, and economically as well and the losers of history so that everyone, Jew or Gentile, Roman or barbarian, could find their hope in Jesus. 
I think to read this as a containing uh, an, an element of expectation, surprise, or even disappointment would not be stretching it too much at all. Jesus says, all ten of you are healed, but it's just you, the Samaritan. What happened? And why didn't the nine, presumably Jews, turn up? And what happened there? I think the key word, at least as envisioned by Luke, the gospel writer, is this word, Samaritan. Samaritan as opposed to Jewish. One as opposed to nine. They're all lepers together. While you were rejected by society, you can acknowledge the temporary alliance between, with the Samaritan, the sort of a mixed race that had corrupted pure religion of Israel, as many had talked about in Second Temple Judaism. But maybe when they gotten better, when the Jewish lepers got better, they ran back to their community first. And in their midst of euphoria and excitement of celebration and re-kind of uh, huddling together with your family, maybe they forgot to come back. Right? So that, I, I think that is the most, most likely, perhaps, and most benign interpretation. This is what I mean, right? So 10 of them got healed, 9 didn't come back, and why do you think they didn't come back? Less, I mean, would you come back to Jesus and say thank you? I like to think that I would, but knowing myself as well as I do, I don't think I would. Not because I don't want to thank Jesus, but I'd be so excited to be able to give high five and have a drink with my family and friends and share a meal together. And against my better judgments, I forgot to give thanks to Jesus. Maybe. But then you know what else that might reveal? Is that perhaps there's a deeper sense of entitlement. Maybe Shakespeare is right after all. To err is human, to forgive divine. Maybe we think that it's God's job to forgive. Maybe all I need to do is come every Sunday and say, you know what, I blew it, God. Oh man, I'm sorry. And we expect, we expect, and we know, not just expect, we know that God will forgive. And thus there may be a sense of established, cumulative sense of entitlement. Thus the irony of entitlement. Me and you and all of us. That leads me to my second point, the irony of estrangement. E-S-T-R-A-N-G-M-E-N-T. Why did just one person who also happens to be a Samaritan come back to give thanks? Let's start it this way in our investigation. What is the most famous parable of Jesus? I want to ask this to middle and high school students. I know there are a couple of you here, and some of you actually go to school with my son. Um, what do you think? What is the most famous parable of Jesus? I'm tempted to call out a name, but somebody help me out here. What is the most famous parable of Jesus? The parable of... Parable, two words after that. Sorry? No, okay, that's probably rank number one. Okay, the, the parable of the prodigal son, number two then, okay? Prodigal son is number one. Number two is similar, two words, a parable of the good Samaritan. You said that, Carter, right? Right, that's right. All right, so the parable of the good Samaritan. Now, where is that story found? What gospel? The gospel of Luke. Now, I want you to understand, in the thick of this cultural and ethnic tension, Jesus came. Jesus came, and according to the gospel writer Luke, Jesus tells a story about the Good Samaritan. 
Jesus encounters a Samaritan who comes back to give thanks. And these stories are collected by Luke to present to the readers that Jesus of Nazareth is not just Jesus of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth is Jesus of the Gentiles and the Samaritans and the Romans and the barbarians and Scythians and all of them. Indians and the Chinese and the South Americans and Africans and all of them. And this is the beginning point of the expansion of the kingdom of God through the mercies of Jesus Christ. And Luke has a central role in that. And as it is kind of beginning to expand, at the closest kind of you know, vicinity to the Jewish identity was this despised group called the Samaritans. And so the story of the Samaritans, so think about what gospel writer Luke is trying to do. See, as I said, this gospel, you know, the story of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan shows up in Luke chapter 10. And what he wants to show is that he talks about this Roman centurion in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 9, Luke writes that Jesus said that he had not found such great faith even in Israel. So here's a Roman soldier who's stationed in, in Judea, and his child, his servant is sick, and he says, you know, don't even bother to come to my house. You don't need to do that. Just say the word and it'll be done. And Jesus is astonished, and he says, you know what? I don't even see, you know, faith like this even in Israel. So he's kind of, you know, inching forward and, and, and hinting at the kind of inclusion that the gospel will bring about. Jews or Gentile, men and women, free and unfree. And to this Roman centurion, is now part of God's family. And in chapter 10, Jesus tells this famous parable to illustrate an element of surprise. That the group of people who felt estranged from the God of Israel, or at least the people of God, were not beyond the hope of redemption at all. Here's the irony of estrangement. I don't think it's simply crazy to assume that the Samaritans have been the object of scorn as well as estrangement from the Jewish community. That they were looked upon as, you know what? You have basically created some weird religion. You have been kind of mixing and, and your, your you know, blood and all that. So there's a lot of problem. You guys are really the problem. And so think about the kind of tension, ethnic and racial tension, and human history is shot through, and our nation's history is shot through the kind of racial issues and ethnic tensions, and all of that is part of our story. I grew up in, partly in Seoul, Korea, and partly in Philadelphia, and until we moved to Nashville, Tennessee in 2006, racial realities, that was part of my identity, but it really didn't hit me hard until I moved here. And also another thing hit me hard, the prevalence of Christianity. Like when we were looking for houses, they would ask us, like, where, where do you go to church? And I said, my God, what if I didn't go to church? Do I have to make up a church's name to say, I sort of, you, you belong? And this real, really interesting juxtaposition, putting together of Christianity and race. And that actually, if you kind of think like that, you get this story actually. Because from the Jewish standpoint, the Samaritans are looked down upon. And the irony of the estrangement and entitlement is that those who felt that they were entitled didn't really get it. Those who felt that they were strange ended up getting it. And Luke really wants to show that at the foot of the cross, there's an equal footing. You cannot have some kind of ethnic racial superiority. You cannot have some kind of class superiority or economic superiority. Because the gospel of Jesus is for all. 
See, for Luke, this person's ethnicity was really crucial. The grammatical construction here at the end of verse 16, and he was a Samaritan, was really emphatic emphasis. Like this is his, what, what, what Luke really wants you to know was his ethnicity. As the parable of the, as the sort of the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan as well. That the punchline really hung on the fact that the surprise rescue agent turned out to be the one whom most, if not virtually all of Jesus' Jewish neighbors didn't expect, but in fact secretly, if not openly despised, Samaritans. This is the one who had experienced estrangement from the community of God. Jesus also expressed surprise. Nobody came back except for this, the word there is allogenes. And that means quite literally the other person. So the foreigner, the word that is rendered as foreigner, that means like the other. Okay, whatever you think about, okay, I'm this, but that's the other. Jesus says, and Jesus says, look, nobody came back except for this other guy, this foreigner, this someone who doesn't really belong to our community. He came back, so what gives? Someone that really did not count in God's economy, but the irony of estrangement is that this Samaritan had a bit of double consciousness that a great American philosopher and social critic from the last century, W.E.B. Du Bois, mentioned. Double consciousness. This Samaritan knew that he was a leper, but this Samaritan also knew that he was a Samaritan. He was doubly estranged. The irony here is that the only one who came back was the one who was doubly conscious of his estrangement. I am a leper, I am actually not part of the right kind of ethnic group. One of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Slumdog Millionaire. I don't know if you have seen that, it's a movie that was released in 2008 and won a few Academy Awards and so on, which was the story of a contestant in the Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Jamal Malik, an 18-year-old guy from the Juhu slums of Mumbai, becomes the unlikeliest of contestant to win a million dollars. Because it is not that he went through all the right schooling, far from it. He went through what we might call the school of hard knocks. And he went through, and then somehow, through various vicissitudes, he got to have experiences of these questions that they were asking. So he ends up winning. But then, there's, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to give, you, give away the plot, but you should really watch it. It's rated R, so middle schoolers maybe wait until you go to high school, but it's a fantastic movie. And so one of the, another subplot lines is that the love that Jamal has for this uh, friend of his, uh, Latika, they grew up together, and he, Jamal, really liked her, loved her, and there's always this chase that Jamal has to go after her, and this, every time Jamal feels dejected or depressed or disappointed by life, he thinks of Latika. And then all the senses of, and he feels both of them felt estranged by the majority culture, but at the same time, what bound them together is that he was always longing for her because of his love for her. That leads me uh, to my final point, which is the irony of the gospel. As we read earlier in the beginning of our sermon from the book of Leviticus, my favorite book of the Bible, perhaps yours as well, um, that the lepers were, in chapter 13, they were supposed to live outside a city gate. Think about gated cities, ancient cities that were gated, medieval cities that were gated, modern cities that may have gates, or think of gated community, okay? Inside a city, inside a gated community, what do you have? Safety, security, family perhaps, friends. You're not really worried about danger. 
But think about outside the city gate. What do you have outside the city gate? Danger? Strangers? Perhaps people who might take away your belongings or take away your sense of space and security? Lepers are outside, left outside the city gate. But guess what? In Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews says, who else was left outside the city gate? Jesus. In chapter 13 of Hebrews, it says in verse 12, and also Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. That is the indicative part, the statement of the gospel. Jesus suffered outside the city gate. He was left there to be executed. Notice that language. Crucifixion is actually execution. We sanitize the word. We kind of like, yeah, you know, the cross is hanging up there. Imagine. Imagine we were to travel to uh, uh, America in 48, 2,000 years from now. We come to a church and we find an electric chair hanging in the middle of the sanctuary. You would find it as a weird, like, what on earth is that about? If a Roman citizen were to come back to come to our sanctuary today and behold this thing hanging up there, they would say exactly the same thing. What is that? This is, this is actually, this has no business in being at a place of worship. This is what you see at the place outside a city gate. This is where execution happens. This is a clear demonstration of Rome as power and those on the cross you do not. And guess who was hanging on the cross? Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross. So the ethical mandate in verse 13 is, let us then go to Christ outside the city gate, bearing the disgrace he bore. As I teach at Vanderbilt Divinity School, and we talk about a lot about the issues of Christianity and, and globalization, and the question often comes up, and that is this, why is Christianity declining in the West? Why is Euro-American context no longer the key epicenter of Christianity? Right? I mean, many of my colleagues and students are, come from mainline denominations, and mainline denominations are declining. Maybe this particular denomination is not declining, and that's praise God for that, but the larger picture is that there's a sense of decline. Why is that? Well, I want to share something uh, with who may not be read a lot in, 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 in worship services, and I get it. He's uh, uh, a French philosopher from the last century. His name is Michel Foucault. Um, I was actually teaching this book, Madness and Civilization, last week in a grad seminar, and it hit me like a ton of brick, like, holy crap, what he has to say is really, really applicable to our contemporary Christian, because he actually says this. He says, you know, leprosy sort of disappeared in, in late medieval Europe, right? I mean, how many lepers do you know? No, really, I'm not kidding. I mean, how, many, how many lepers do we know? I mean, they're in leprosariums and so on and so forth. They're leper colonies, but then leprosy is not part of, like, you know, our day-to-day -day consciousness. Foucault says, so leprosy disappeared, and then what happened was poverty came up, and you know, the, the, the issues of the poor, but also the issue of madness came up, right? Thus the title, Madness and Civilization. So, Whereas in the past, well, you can see in ancient Judaism, as well as the times of Jesus, the lepers are the ultimate, like, the losers of history. And they're like, oh, there, there they are. You know, we don't want to come near them 50 yards. But then what happened is that then there's a, a group of the beggars and then the mad, and they became institutionalized. And this is what he says. 
It says the reason why that happened is perhaps in the West, we forgot something really, really important. And you know what that is according to Foucault? It says that, you know what? Jesus, did you know that true or false? Jesus was called mad by his family and friends. True or false? It's not a rhetorical question. True or false? True. Absolutely true. And then the cross of Jesus Christ was seen as a foolishness and madness to the people around. I mean, the culture despisers of Christianity said, what? I mean, think about it like this. My friends were in high school and middle school. Somebody who is executed, right? Somebody who receives death penalty. Would you think of that person as, I want to be like that individual? I want to follow that individual? I want my life to be like that? And parents, would you say, would you tell your children, when you grow up, I want you to be like that person who got executed last week? No, quite the opposite. And here is the irony and the truth and the irony of the gospel. You see, when Christianity was introduced, Christianity was seen as weird-ass religion. Pardon my curse. Crazy. Mad. Why would anyone want to be a Christian? You know what? I became a Christian as a junior in college. All my friends that I used to party with said, you are crazy. What are you doing? You're giving up your life. This is nonsense. It made no sense. But somehow, according to Foucault, the culture in the Western civilization, when Christianity became part of the empire, when Christianity no longer was the object of scorn and derision and persecution, when Christianity became part of the story and part of the edifice of the culture, then what happened was that Christianity no, no, no longer was the object of scorn, thus object of scandal. What do you mean you worship somebody who's hanging on a cross? Because everyone has a necklace of the cross. It became sanitized. The madness of Jesus became sanitized. And it says, this is what it says, the madness of God in man, namely Jesus Christ, Foucault writes, is simply a wisdom unrecognized by the men of unreason who live in this world. Jesus crucified was a scandal of the world, and he appeared as nothing but ignorance and madness to the eyes of his time. But something happened, he writes, that we no longer regard Jesus as mad, that he makes sense to us. That means Christianity makes complete sense to us. I want us to really think about that. There has to be something really scandalous about Christianity. What do you mean? One person dies and he, I mean, I don't know. I became a Christian at age 21 and something that's still, it's been 30 years. There's something that really is troublesome for me. I believe it. I know it in my heart, but some dude, a Jewish guy 2,000 years ago, dies as an executed criminal, and his death has something to do with me, that I say, Lord, forgive me, and in that moment of prayer, my sins are completely wiped clean? Do you believe that? That's nonsense. Or is it nonsense? Yeah, at one level, it is nonsense. It makes no sense. It is scandalous. But to the, to the extent that you and I became tamed by the story, yeah, it is true. Well, no, I want you to wrestle with the scandalous nature of the gospel message. The irony of the gospel is exactly that. Maybe you and I need to reconsider the madness of the cross. Jesus who touched lepers and hung out with the social outcasts, that Jesus, that gospel, 
As Richard Burroughs in his fantastic book, Imitating Jesus, mentions that for the gospel writer Luke, he always portrayed Jesus as one preferentially drawn to the poor, the blind, lame, crippled, and leprous, those possessed or oppressed by evil spirits, and of course, women. Luke alone, more than any other gospel writer, talks about the fact that Jesus was ministered to and helped by and worked with women. Before I close this sermon, I want to acknowledge our dear sister. I've, you know, I've, I've spoken, whenever I do this, uh, she will, he will have the sermon manuscript. She's doing it completely out of minute. She's probably saying the same thing. I hope you're, thank you very much. And this is a wonderful, wonderful work of inclusion here. Because in our society, there are so many who feel that the worshiping community basically says, you can't come near 50 yards. You know. So the irony of the gospel is that it calls us to follow a madman who touched lepers and became contaminated. In fact, his whole ministry was carrying our diseases. Let me end with the lyrics from a great song by this great theologian that I admire so deeply. I think he lives in Nashville too, Michael Card. His song called God's Own Fool. So come lose your life for a carpenter's son, for a madman who died for a dream. And you will have the faith his first followers had, and you will feel the weight of the beam. So surrender the hunger to say you must know. Have the courage to say, I believe. For the power of paradox opens your eyes and blinds those who say they can see. Embrace the irony, embrace the madness, my friend, and experience the liberating power of the gospel so that you may embrace those who are outside, not with a sense of superiority, but sense of indebtedness, and so that the peace of God that reigns in your hearts will become more and more real in our communities, starting right here, right now. Let's pray.